Can you hear me now? Hey, welcome to Grace, guys. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit different. Uh, as you know, probably, uh, if you've been here a few weeks, uh, we're going to start a new series this morning. So I wanted to do a real quick um, overview, a real quick introduction to our sermon series called Siren, Warnings from Hebrews. And so we're going to take just a few minutes to do that before we uh, stand and sing. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, grab, uh, grab them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews is uh, where we're going to be uh, in our quick sermon series intro this morning. I've entitled uh, the sermon series just for a, a real short month called Siren, Warnings from the Book of Hebrews. Warnings from the Book of Hebrews. So I want to begin this morning uh, with a quick word of prayer. And uh, so I'll pray and uh, then we'll get into it. Father, thanks again for a great morning. Uh, we just ask and beg that you would be among us, that your spirit would teach us, and that your son would be honored. And all that we do, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so I want to begin with this idea of, of a siren. Uh, a siren, whether it be from a police car or an ambulance or maybe a tornado warning, um, a siren, a blaring siren, is really intended uh, to do one or two things. It's intended to get our attentions, and it's intended for us to pay attention and to heed whatever warning that's going to be. A uh, quick story by way of introduction. Uh, when Shelley and I lived in Dallas, I don't know if you knew this or not, uh, but Dallas Theological Seminary is located pretty close to downtown. Dallas. And, uh, and so we were in the midst of all sorts of things <laughs> at the seminary. Uh, but one of the things that we were very close to was uh, maybe not the largest hospital, but probably one of the largest hospitals in the Metroplex area was literally two blocks from where we lived, two blocks down from the seminary. And so we could take a one-minute jaunt and be at one of the best, one of the biggest hospitals around. And so living close to, this, uh, close to the hospital uh, meant uh, one thing, that we always heard sirens. And so uh, one of the things that we had to get used to living uh, in Dallas, and in particular living right at the seminary, was that there were sirens going off practically all the time. It was uh, and, and not an abnormal thing at all to hear the ambulance sirens, uh, sirens blare all the time. And so when we lived in Dallas, not only did we hear ambulance uh, sirens going off most of the time, but we lived in near downtown Dallas. And it probably wasn't the maybe safest area in downtown Dallas. And so it was not abnormal either to hear the sirens uh, from police cars going off all the time. And so it would not be abnormal to be taking a walk down the street and to see both a police car going this way and an ambulance going that way and for us to really not think anything of it. It was just normal. And so living in Dallas, uh, our, our typical, at least, at least my typical response to hearing these sirens, to hearing these warnings, were basically to ignore them, to tune them out, to not heed them. And so we became very accustomed just to tuning out these sirens sirens that were meant to be warnings for us to get out of the way and warnings that something was going down. In fact, I still remember the day uh, when I was walking home from campus and it was uh, about dusk time and there was a helicopter that was hovering over and around the seminary and I thought, that's odd. It's a police helicopter. And then I noticed the sirens of, of the police cars and there was an old abandoned building about one block, probably not even a block away from where we lived. And lo and behold, there was a spotlight and they are chasing a criminal half a block from where I live. And this was not abnormal. And so we just got used to drowning out these sirens that were meant to be warnings to us. Now then we moved to Cisna Park, obviously. We live here in Cisna Park. And, and you're laughing because you know there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference. I don't hear sirens all the time. In fact, I almost never hear a siren. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen our police officer with his sirens on. <laughs> he never pulls anybody over as far as I know, and I don't want to be the first. Um, so you never hear that. And, and in, in addition to that, one of the things that I really noticed moving to System Park was that when the ambulance sirens, uh, sirens go off, what happens? 
everybody walks out their door, they look around, where's it coming from, what direction is it going, who could it possibly be, I'm sure that the, you know, that we're on the phone lines and saying, oh, it's coming from 4th Street, who lives on 4th Street, who could be, you know, and, and, and the town is a buzz. but not only that, but when you're talking with someone and you hear it, conversation immediately just stops, <laughs> it just stops, and we think, oh, somebody's hurt, and, and the thing is, somebody we know, Somebody we know is hurt. And so, and for me, I moved to Cisna Park, and I'm like, oh, there's the ambulance driving by my house. And I'm like, (laughs) no big deal, whatever. I just didn't think about it, and I didn't respond very well to it. And so this morning, uh, we're we're going to be hearing some sirens, some warnings, both this morning and for the next four weeks, um, from the book of Hebrews, warnings that should cause us to pay attention, that should cause us to perk up that should cause us to heed the warning signs. And my prayer for us is that we not respond to these warnings like I responded to in Dallas, but rather how I respond to them now in Cisna Park. I perk up, I listen, I engage, I see what's going on. And so uh, this morning's siren, warnings from the book of Hebrews. A couple things about the book of Hebrews. Uh, I want to talk first of all about the purpose of the book of Hebrews, and then I want to talk a little bit about the format of the book of Hebrews, just to get us familiar. Um, We will be taking a very select look at a, a very few passages in the whole book of Hebrews. So I really encourage you, during your quiet times, during your devotionals, spend some time, say, in the next month in the book of Hebrews. It will profit you much, um, but this will not at all be an exhaustive study on the book of Hebrews. We're just going to look at several of the warning passages. So what is the book of Hebrews really about? There's really a twofold purpose for the book of Hebrews. Number one, it's meant to encourage uh, Jewish, Jewish Christians. And so the book is written to those who were believers in Jesus Christ. They had at least made a profession of faith in Christ, and they were Jewish ethnically. And these believers were in a bit of trouble. Uh, this was probably written to a church in Rome, uh, possibly written during the time of Nero or, or shortly before, when persecution and difficulties in the Christian life were becoming an increasing problem. And so the, the author of this book essentially writes to these Jewish Christians, and he says, don't Don't forsake Christ. Don't turn away from the Christian faith because these believers were in danger of rejecting Christ and turning back to their Jewish ways, turning back to Judaism, if you will. And so they wanted to make a U-turn in their faith, if you think of it that way. They were going down the road of Christianity and walking by faith in Christ, and then they saw the oncoming traffic of persecution and hardship and difficulty in their lives, and then they said, Maybe it's time for us to turn away and to reject Christianity. Uh, quick story along those lines. I don't know if you've ever uh, been on a one-way street and been going the wrong way on a one-way street. Uh, I found that I've done that three or four times in my life, unfortunately. It means maybe I'm a bad driver. But I remember one particular instance where I'm in a downtown city, and I take like a left, and I think that I'm going the right way. And lo and behold, I see the traffic coming directly at me. And, and what I would do what you do in that moment. I panic. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I hit the brakes and I look for like an exit. You know what I mean? I look for a street that I can pull off into and I see the oncoming traffic and very, very, very gratefully, um, there, was a, there was a road to my right or maybe to my left. And so I immediately just swerved onto that road and got off the one-way street. I made a U-turn. I turned around. And that's essentially what these believers were doing. They were heading uh, uh, down a street and they saw that there was traffic ahead. They saw that there was trouble ahead. They saw that there was persecution ahead. They saw that there were difficulties in life ahead of them, the path that they were going down Christianity, and they, they paused a minute, and they said, do we want to go down this street, 
Or do we want to turn around, reject Christianity, and go back into Judaism? And so the first element is to encourage Jewish Christians to to not give up the faith. But then secondarily, not only that, but the purpose then, the author writes, he says, don't reject Christ, don't give up the faith. But then secondly, instead of doing that, mature. Mature in the faith. I think we have a slide for this. Uh, Mature in the faith. Don't forsake Christ, but instead, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, in the midst of the oncoming traffic, mature through it. Face it, endure it, and mature through the trials. And so that's the point, that's the purpose of the book. Secondly then, what's the format of this wonderful book? Uh, The format really supports the author's purpose. If you read through the book of Hebrews, what you're going to find is it's more like a sermon than a letter. It's a sermon. The guy who writes the book of, uh, of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is, he's a preacher. He's a pastor, and he's writing with a pastoral heart, and what we see is he basically gives them a sermon in written form. And and there are basically five sections. I think we'll see this uh, on the next slide, please. There are five alternating sections of exposition and exhortation. Basically, he says, this is what you need to know. Here's the content. Here's the theology. Here's the exposition. And then he goes on to the application or, or the exhortation. This is what you should do with it. And the main thrust of these five sections is he says, Christ is better. Because what were they in danger of doing? Rejecting Christianity in favor of Judaism. And so the bulk of the book of Hebrews is comparing Christ to Judaism, comparing Christianity to the Old Covenant. And he says, guys, Christianity is way better. Christ is way better. And so that's the bulk of this section. But then the exhortation section, these five sections, that's where we're going to focus. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not ever tempted to go back to my Jewish ways because I'm not Jewish. (laughs) And I'm not ever tempted to go back into Judaism because I was never in Judaism to begin with. But uh, myself and like all of us as believers, we might be tempted to go back to living the way we were before Christ. We might be tempted to reject Christianity altogether and to go back to whatever it was that we did before we placed our faith in Christ. And so we're going to focus then on this last section, the exhortation. And the exhortation basically has two parts. Number one, the author says, don't give up. Don't give up. You're going through hardship. You're going through trials. You're facing persecutions. Things are not easy. Do not give up. And then secondly, he says, don't give up, but instead grow up. That's what he says. Face the trials. Don't give up in the midst of them, but use them as a tool for growing up in your faith. And that is essentially uh, the format of the book of Hebrews. And so um, we're going to take a look at four warnings, four exhortations. There are actually five warning passages, sections in the book. We're going to take a look at four of them in some very select verses. But just uh, if you're taking notes, jot these down. This is where we're going to be the next four weeks. These are the four exhortations, the four warnings, the four blaring sirens that we're going to hear. First of all, this morning, the author will say, don't turn away. Don't turn away. That's where we'll be this morning. Next week, he'll say, don't stay a baby. Do not stay a baby Christian. Thirdly, in the third week, he'll say, don't lose heart. Just don't lose heart. And then finally, he'll say, don't stop loving. Don't stop loving one another. Don't turn away. Don't stay a baby. Don't lose heart and don't stop loving. Those are the four exhortations, the four warnings that we're going to see this morning as we begin this wonderful book of Hebrews in our new series, Siren. 
warnings from the book of Hebrews. So let's do this. We have a general sense about what Hebrews is all about. When we get to our sermon here in a little bit, and it will be shortened, don't worry guys, um, we're going to look at the very first warning, that is don't turn away. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask one of our elders to come on up. They're going to pray for us. They're going to pray for our worship time as we engage in worship and singing about enduring. We're gonna, they're going to pray for our sermon series. And so uh, Dan or Jay, whoever that is, Dan, uh, come on up and pray for us, and then we'll stand and we'll sing um, and worship to our Lord. All right, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me again to the book of Hebrews, and uh, turn to chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, we're going to begin in verse 7, and uh, we'll go on at least through verse 13, probably on through verse 19. And so uh, we've had a really quick introduction to uh, the book of Hebrews and our series Siren, a warning from Hebrews. And so let's just dive in a little bit um, to, our, to our text and hear this very first warning from the lips of the author of Hebrews. And the warning is this, don't turn away. That's the emphasis for this morning. He says, to those Christians who are struggling uh, way back when and those of us who are still struggling today. Don't turn away from the faith. And so uh, before we get into chapter 3, what I'd like to do is just give us a brief uh, background, uh, kind of catching us up a little bit as to where we are in the book. Uh, Obviously, we're jumping into the book of Hebrews right at chapter 3. And so basically what we see, if you read through the book of Hebrews, in chapters 1 and 2, the author is basically trying to, in an exhortation kind of a way, he's trying to tell us that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Uh, Now, the angels in chapters 1 and 2 were held in high esteem uh, in the Jewish mind because they were the mediators. They were God's means by which they received the law, by which they received the covenants. And so um, the author in in chapters 1 and 2 goes to great lengths to prove that Jesus Christ is indeed way better than any angel, than any covenant mediator. Uh, But in in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we find the very first warning. So if if you're in your Bibles, uh, look at chapter 2 with me really quickly, because in in chapter 2, verse 1, we come to what is the first of five warnings. We're going to kind of hit on this one quickly and then turn to the second warning. But the first one is significant because the second one builds off of it. And the first warning is found in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, this is what the author says. He gets into his very first siren. Uh, we must pay, uh, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And so the very first uh, warning that he gives is a warning against drifting. It's a warning to Christians, to those who are Jewish Christians, from drifting away from the faith. Now this word drift describes a ship on the ocean, if you can imagine that, a ship that's on the ocean that is drifting, and there's a dock, and that dock represents safety, and it's drifting towards that dock, but this idea of drifting away has the idea of a boat drifting past a dock that is safe and into dangerous and rough waters. And so drifting past something that is safe into something that is not safe. And so the first warning is basically a warning not to drift away, not to drift away from that port, from that anchor, uh, from that rock that is Christianity, and drift into the dangerous waters of returning to Judaism. Uh, by way of illustration, I don't know if you've ever had uh, an, ex- an experience like this, but I remember very vividly, I don't know exactly how old I was, maybe five or six, I was pretty young, and uh, my family on occasion, I uh, would go camping. Uh, we weren't huge campers, but on occasion we would go camping, and I always enjoyed it. Um, and I remember specifically going camping one year, and uh, there were a lot of rivers and lakes and things, and there was a particular uh, river that was on the, camps, on the campsite, on the campground. 
And so we were going, and me and uh, some family friends, some of my friends and some of my mom and dad's family friends, and we're going, and we come to this, uh, this kind of a river. And it's a very small, very shallow river uh, at, at this particular point in time, and it was a favorite place for people to cross the river. And so we decided uh, that we would cross the river. Um, and and downriver, uh, it got pretty, uh, pretty hairy. There were a lot of rapids downriver, and so it was one of those things that if you went through safely, that was fine. But if you happened to get caught up in a draft, if you happened to get caught up in the current, it was very, very possible, especially for a young child like myself, that they could, we could kind of get swept away into the currents. And so, um, of course, we were careful. Mom and dad, okay, hold hands, right? And so I remember I'm holding hands front and back with, uh, I don't know who was on back, but I, I had a good friend who was up front, and we were kind of crossing this very shallow area. And just to the left of it, downstream, uh, was kind of like a really small what's the word I would use? A very small blockade, a very small dam, if you will, just kind of a man-made rock dam that people had made, and it made, it made the currents a little bit quicker. Long story short, we're walking, and guess what happened? Guess who was the one who, who kind of got swept up? It was me, okay? And uh, back then, I was just a little skinny little thing, and I didn't have much weight to kind of hold me down, and so I, I must have slipped. I don't know exactly what happened, but I, I lost my footing, and I remember very vividly going into the water and being swept towards what was kind of, in my mind at least, the raging river and the currents, and I was very, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't, but it, it, it seemed like it, uh, and I was very scared, of course, and I remember uh, I was kind of being swept away, and there was that dam there, and I remember clinging on to a couple big rocks. I was just very fortunate. I, I grabbed onto the rocks, and as a kid, it's like you're hanging there forever. It was probably like two or three seconds, you know, but I'm, I remember very vividly hanging on there to the rock with the entire weight of my body being swept, wanting to go away into the dangerous waters, and I just remember holding on as long as I could, and then one of our, uh, one of our adult friends, I remember him just grabbing me, I think, by my hands and just picking me straight up and saving me from this imminent death of peril that I'm sure awaited me on the other side. Um, but I remember that because uh, that rock was kind of my dock, if you will. I grabbed onto it because I was in danger of being swept away into dangerous waters. And that's the image, that's the very first warning that the author of Hebrews gives to these Christians. They're in danger of being swept away back into Judaism, but there is a dock, there's a safe place, there, there are rocks, if you will, that they need to cling onto, and those rocks are their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the very first warning. And now we're going to get to the second warning, which is we're, where we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time. And so the second warning in the book of Hebrews, but really our first warning for this series is entitled, Don't Turn Away. Don't Turn Away. And that's built, obviously, upon the warning to not drift away. And, and so what we're going to do is let's, let's read this as a whole, starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And we'll probably read through verse 19, and then we'll focus just on a couple specific examples. But there are two parts to this exhortation. There are two portions, if you will, to this warning. First of all, he gives us an example of turning away in verses 7 through 11. There's going to be an example to be heeded, and then there's going to be an exhortation to be followed. So he gives us an example of turning away, followed by an exhortation not to turn away. So let's read uh, the passage as a, as a whole, and then we'll focus in on just a few verses. So let's start in chapter 3, uh, verse 7. <clears throat> so as the Holy Spirit says, quoting Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." 
So we've seen the example. And then he gets to the exhortation in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I'll just read through the rest of the section. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firm to the very end. As, just, uh, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did, did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose, uh, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? And he concludes by saying this, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. That is indeed God's very word. And so basically this morning, there are a couple things I want us to focus on in this first warning to not turn away. And the first is the example. And so uh, this author, like any good pastor, uh, knows the value of a good illustration because when we see experiences in other people's lives, then we uh, learn, hopefully, from those experiences, both positive and negative. And so he gives this example of a people, uh, namely God's redeemed people, Israel, right after they uh, got out of Egypt, after Moses led them, Uh, across the sea, and he gives Christians back then and today, you and I, this example of people who turned away from the living God, and that's found in verses 7 through 11. Now, we're not going to read that again, but what we'll find out is that uh, this particular instance is a quote from Psalm 95, and the quote in Psalm 95 is recalling a very specific instance that's found in Exodus 17, and that is the, uh, the instant instance in Exodus 17 where God's people were in the wilderness and uh, there was no water. They were thirsty. There was no water. They begin to complain. They begin to doubt. They begin to grumble. Uh, We see throughout that whole section that they as a people, although they experienced some of God's redemption, they saw God's power, uh, they got out of Egypt, they did not have faith in him. They did not continue in obedience to him. And, And indeed, in several instances, they say, and this is Trey's paraphrase, Moses, why did you bring us here? We want to go back home. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't like it here. We don't trust God here. We want to go back. Notice, we want to go back to how it was. And as a result, we see from the text of Exodus 17 and all throughout Exodus that as a result of their faith, God says, you are not going to enter into the promised land. I have a promised land for you, and you will not make it because of your unbelief. And so this is an example, both for the Christians then and for Christians today, of those who turned away from a living God. And I think why the author of Hebrews chose this specific instance is because it serves as a warning to us. They had experienced some of God's redemption. They had seen him work at power. They made a profession to follow him, and yet they did not make the promised land because, and here's the important point, when times got tough, For Israel, when there was no water, when things became difficult, when it was hard, when they faced a challenge, when they faced a trial, then their hearts turned away from God and they wanted to go back to Egypt. And I believe that that's why the author chooses this specific illustration because this is the scenario that those Christians way back then and some of us today are facing. 
We profess to have experienced redemption through Christ, and the author is saying through this example, don't deny Christ. Don't turn away from your faith when hardships come or you will not enter the eternal promised land. And so it's a warning. They had experienced difficulties. These Jewish Christians were experiencing increasing levels of persecution and difficulty. And many of us today face all sorts of difficulties. We face persecution. We face hardship. We face trial. We face face illness, we face death, we face financial crisis, we face, we face interpersonal relationship. We have all sorts of difficulties in this life, just as they did. And we too don't need to turn away. We too don't need to allow the difficult circumstances of life to cause us to want to go back to Egypt, if you will. And so he talks about the example in verses 7 through, four, uh, 7 through 11. And then he turns to the exhortation, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. In the exhortation, uh, we'll focus on verses 12 and 13. We see the example of of turning away, and then he says an exhortation to not turn away. And so he takes that illustration, and he applies it to the life of his hearers, and then we'll apply it to our life as well. And so he applies the example. He applies the example starting in verse 12. And there are a couple parts, a couple portions, if you will, to this example, a couple exhortations. First, he's going to say to Christians back then and to Christians today, like me and you, he's going to say, don't turn away. And then he's going to say, encourage one another. And so it's a twofold exhortation. And the first is a warning, it's negative. The second is uh, a command, and it's positive, it's an exhortation. And so the first one is found in verse 12. And the first exhortation is this don't turn away. Let's read it again in verse 12. He says, see to it, brothers, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so the very first part of this exhortation, the first thrust of what he has to say, has to do with the individual Christian's responsibility to check his heart, to have a heart check, to not turn away from the living God. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, see to it. That's kind of a, it's almost a weak translation in my mind. It's, it's the idea of a sense of urgency. Pay attention to this. Give heed to this. Make sure that this is not happening. It's a sense of urgency. So he says, see to it, brothers, each of you individually, and make sure that what? That none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart that then manifests itself from turning away from the living God. And so it refers to the fact that me and you as believers, we need to have heart checks. We need to see that our heart is not sinful and unbelieving and that we are not on the path towards turning away from the living God. If you look in the Greek, this term living away uh, is where we get the term apostasy. I don't know if you've ever heard that term or not, but it's a very, very strong word that he's intending here. He's not talking about backsliding. He's not talking about a Christian who's a professing Christian who has a moral lapse, who's struggling with sin, who for a time period goes away into sin, although that might lead to apostasy. He's talking about this term. It's a deliberate, decisive persistent denial of Christ and Christianity. So what he's saying then is he's saying we need to make sure those of us who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ that we instead have, a, have an unbelieving heart that eventually will one day because of circumstances, because of trials, because of things that we're facing like these early believers were facing will decide I'm going down the road of Christianity. I see that there's oncoming traffic. Whatever that oncoming traffic is, and I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't want to believe in Christ anymore. And you take a U-turn, and you go the other way to avoid the traffic. That's the first exhortation, is an individual warning for those of us 
who profess faith in Christ to not turn away, to not turn away when things get difficult. By way of illustration, I've got a couple of illustrations to, to illustrate this point. I don't know if there are people who are popping in your mind or not. Uh, if, if you've been in church a long time and if you've been a believer for a long time, uh, you may know of a person who uh, professed faith, as far as you knew, as a Christian, and, uh, and circumstances happened and they turned away. Not only did they just stop coming to church or start living immorally, they rejected Christianity. They said, I don't believe that anymore. I don't accept Christ anymore. And uh, that's, what he's, uh, that's what's happening here. Um, illustration number one, uh, and I talk, was talking with Shelly about it yesterday. Um, <clears throat> she had the unfortunate incident of having uh, one of her youth pastors growing up. Um, we don't know if he full-fledged apostatized, but he was certainly well on his way. Uh, this guy was a professing Christian, as far as I know from Shelly, a, a good guy. He was her youth pastor, uh, certainly somebody who worked in the church, certainly someone who at that point in time would profess faith in Christ, would believe that uh, he's the son of God, and was living out his faith. Um, to make a long story short, things happened in the church. He got hurt. Um, I don't know the specifics, but something happened. He got hurt by Christians, and so he decided, first of all, to stop going to church. And then that led to him deciding that, um, I, I think not only am I not going to church, but I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm gay. And so he, d- he decided to do that, and then which inevitably led to possibly, we don't know this for sure, possibly him walking away altogether from his faith, the last we heard. So that's one illustration from, uh, unfortunate illustration from the life of my wife. Uh, another one is, is, is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. Um, if you uh, ever go to uh, bookstores, um, he has written a lot of religious material, Bart Ehrman, um, and he's a wonderful scholar, um, but he fits into this category. As his story goes, I don't know all the details, but uh, raised in a church, as far as I know, made a profession of faith, as a teenager, uh, would claim to have been born again, uh, to be walking with Christ. He decided uh, to pursue ministry and theological education, and so he went then to a very well-known evangelical school that was solid and received his uh, master's degree from that, and then decided to go uh, with what is uh, not so evangelical uh, doctorate program, and in the midst of that, somehow, and I don't know the details, somehow decided that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God, and that his faith was all a hoax, and that the Bible was unreliable, and that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God and walked away from the faith so that at this point he calls himself um, an ad- agnostic or an atheist at best. Um, this is what this first exhortation is warning each of us who are believers in Christ from avoiding. He says, see to it brothers that none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so applicationally speaking, I think this is a, an exhortation for us individually to examine our heart. We need to ask some difficult questions. Questions like this, are hardships, circumstances in my life causing three things, dissatisfaction with God, doubt of God, or distance from God? You know, I don't know what it is that you're going through right now. Um, I know what some of you are going through. I know what I'm going through, uh, but I can't possibly know the intricacies of every single life here in this church. For those of you who profess faith in Christ, but I'm certainly uh, sure of this, that throughout our lifetime, we will face hardships. We will face difficulties as these early Christians were. And while we may not be... um, while we may not be tempted to fall back into Judaism, we may very well, like Ehrman and like Shelley's youth pastor, be tempted to turn away from the faith. And so we have to ask difficult questions. Are circumstances and hardships causing dissatisfaction with God? Are they causing dissatisfaction with God? That is, we think in our heart and in our minds, and maybe we verbalize it. God, I don't expect you to work this way. 
God, this is not what I'm anticipating. You should be doing something different. I'm dissatisfied, God, with how you are ruling over my life. Is there doubt? God, I don't. I'm beginning to doubt if you're good. I'm beginning to doubt if you love me. I'm beginning to doubt if you're acting in my life. I'm beginning to doubt your power, God. I'm beginning to doubt. Or maybe you're feeling distant from God. You're not engaging in a relationship with God, in prayer, in reading the word, in coming to church, and you are distancing yourself from God. Other questions. Do I often question in my mind why I go to church, why I believe in God? Do I trust in Christ? After all, if he is allowing me to go through this, those kind of questions, I think, is what this exhortation is asking. Are we starting to question Are we starting to question the work that Jesus Christ has done in our life? Do we begin to think, is this really real? Have I really been born again? Am I really believing in God? Does he really exist? Jesus, are you really the son of God? Uh, That experience that I had back when I was 20 or 12 or 25 or 40, when I placed my faith in Jesus, was that real? Or was it just a hoax? These kind of thoughts, I think, indicate that we may be dangerously on that path. And so we, here in this exhortation, It's a call to examine our hearts. And so the first exhortation is he said, do not turn away. Don't turn away from the living God. And then secondly, he has a positive exhortation. He says, don't turn away, but on the contrary, encourage one another. Notice what he says again in verse 13. Let's read it together. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened Notice this, you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so he moves then from the individual application, from saying as individually, as individuals, as professing Christians, we need to check our heart. He then moves to the corporate responsibility because not only is it the individual's responsibility to make sure that we're not turning away from God, but hey, listen, it's my, it's my job, it's your job, it's, it's everyone's job. There's a corporate responsibility that we have for one another, in particular when we're going through persecution, hardship, difficult times. Notice he says, encourage one another. Then what does it say? What does it say? Every week, every year, every month. What's the term that he uses, church? Daily. He says, encourage one another daily. And then he adds, just in case we don't get it, as long as it is called today. And so if I were to ask you, what's today? You would say Sunday. And then I would say, oh, is today today? And you would say, yes, today is today. And so then the author of Hebrews would say, well, if today is still called today, then encourage each other. He said, if it's, if it's called today, which it is because we're living, then that is the moment we need to encourage one another. It's a consistent, persistent thing. And so he turns from the individual to the corporate responsibility to make sure that there's no one in our body, no one in our families, no one in our church, no one in our uh, extended relationships with Christians, even outside of the church, that we have a responsibility to encourage them to see to it that they don't have a sinful and unbelieving heart that is falling away from the living God. And so basically what this means practically is that we need to ask each other how we're doing spiritually. I mean, we need to have these kind of conversations with one another. Maybe not with everybody, but with the people that you're close with, the people you have relationships with, and maybe even people that you don't. But we need to be asking one another consistently, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing in your faith walk? Are you loving God? Are you pursuing God? Hey, I know you're having a difficult time. I know your family is going through this. I know your marriage is going through that. I know your kids are facing this. I know you're getting this at work. 
How are you doing? We need to be having these kind of conversations and these kinds of questions. And when we do that, we need to encourage one another to trust in God, to keep through it, to endure, to mature in the midst of that. And we even need to encourage one another and say, these are the consequences of turning your back on Jesus Christ. All of these things, both positive and negative, fit under this idea of encouraging one another. And so church, And I I beg and plead that we would do this, that we would care and look out for one another and encourage one another in light of this warning. So then the question is, why? I mean, why should we do this? Why do we need to encourage one another consistently? Well, he tells us, look at the very end of this verse. He says, we need to do it as long as it's called today, so that. Well, here's the reason why. This is the reason, this is the purpose. We need to do this consistently because, so that, none of you, individual, so that none of you may be hardened, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So why do we need to encourage one another daily, consistently? It's because our hearts become hardened by sin. They become hardened by sin, and they get harder and harder and harder over time. That is, we become harder towards God, harder towards Christ, harder towards church, harder towards fellowship. Our hearts grow hard if it does not go unchecked. For example, I don't know uh, what your dishes practices are, but in my household, what we try to do is we try to do the dishes every meal. Um, I don't know if you do that or not. Um, It's kind of something that we try to do, and we're usually pretty good about actually getting the dishes done after every single meal so that it's not a wreck. But there are occasions, as I'm sure there probably are in your household, when it's a late night or you just don't feel like it. And so it's at the end of the evening. It's like 9 or 9.30 usually for us. And we're exhausted. We're ready to go to bed. <clears throat> and we look at the kitchen. And what do you see? You see a pile of dishes that are grungy and dirty and that are piled up high on the counter or maybe in the sink. And you're like, not tonight, okay? We're just going to leave them tomorrow, and I'm going to deal with it tomorrow. That happens occasionally on our house. Occasionally, right? Not very often. Um, but, but then what happens? You wake up in the morning, and you're facing this pile of dishes, and you go to start scrubbing and, and, and getting the food off of the plate, and that which, if you had done it the night before, would be fairly easy to do. Say you had spaghetti. You take a spaghetti dish, and you start scrubbing, and what do you find? It's what? It's hard. (laughs) It's hardened, right, overnight, because over time, food, when left unclept or cleansed, uh, it, it hardens itself, and it becomes very difficult to work on. I think that's a fitting illustration for what he's saying. He's saying we need to encourage one another every day, every moment, every chance that we get, because our individual hearts, if we're on that path, it's just gonna get harder, and it's gonna get harder, and it's gonna get harder as we're heading towards this path. Sin is deceitful. We're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful. It lies. It lies about God and it lies about us. It lies about God. When we're on this road, when we're on the road towards having a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, sin lies about God. It tells us lies like you can't trust him in this situation. You can't trust him in this situation. He's not good. He's not loving if he allows you to go through this. Sin tells us he must not even exist. There's evil in this world and God must not even exist because sin is deceitful and it lies about God, but not only does it lie about God, it lies about us. 
It lies to us. And it says, you don't really need this Christian crutch. You really don't need this made-up, mythological religion. You're not accountable to anyone. You don't need to listen to them. Life is about you. Just be happy. Do what you want. It lies about God and it lies about us. And so we've seen not only the example of turning away, but we've seen a twofold exhortation. Number one, the author says, don't turn away. Check your hearts. Don't turn away. And then secondly, encourage one another. And the way this falls together is this. We won't turn away. We don't turn away. We keep one another from turning away from Christ and the living God when we encourage one another. And so we've seen our first siren There has been an ambulance driving down the road in the book of Hebrews. There's been a police officer. There's been a tornado siren, and it's blaring. It's going off. It's blazing. It's loud. And so the question then that we're left with this morning and for the next few weeks is, are we going to heed it? Are we going to respond to it? How will we respond to the warnings and the sirens that we've heard? Are we going to act like I did in Dallas? and just live like it's a normal part of life and not pay any attention and ignore it? Or will we live like we do in Cisna Park where we hear the ambulance, we hear the siren, and our ears perk up and we stop our conversations and we listen. And we listen to what God is saying to us. My prayer is that it's not like Dallas, but it's more like Cisna Park. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm gonna ask one of our elders to come pray. And so Jay, would you come pray for us? And we're going to close in song.